Welcome to Episode 7 of the Briona Society Podcast. Our guest today is Nathan Hockman. Nathan is a graduate of Stanford Law School, a former federal prosecutor, and a candidate for district attorney in L.A. County. He's also a common-sense Republican with ideas to stop the crime surge in California. We asked Nathan about a host of topics, everything from Prop 47 to homelessness to how Democratic-aligned groups actually run ads to amplify far-right candidates. It's shocking stuff. Before we start, remember to subscribe to the podcast, and if you have time, leave us a review. We love hearing from you. With that said, the Briona Society is pleased to give you Nathan Hockman. Hi, Nathan. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Many of our listeners know you already. I'm guessing that a lot of them already voted for you. Last year, you ran for Attorney General of California. But for those who are new to California politics, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you very much. So I'm a lifelong Californian, born here, grew up here, schooled here, married here for 30 years, raised my three kids in California. And unlike a lot of people who've left California, I've decided to stay and fight for what I love. And so I went to uh, Brown University, Stanford Law School, came back, clerked for a federal judge in Los Angeles, and went right to the U.S. Attorney's Office, where I basically prosecuted cases on the federal level for seven years, went after everything from narcotics traffickers and gang members to international money launderers, tax evaders, political corruption, ran the environmental crime section. Then about 10 years later, President George W. Bush appointed me as the U.S. Assistant Attorney General of the U.S. Department of Justice's Tax Division, got unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate, went back to D.C., ran an office with a $100 million budget and 350 attorneys going after tax criminals across the nation, came back to Los Angeles, was the head of two major international law firms' government investigations practice, and along the way was the president of the L.A. City Ethics Commission. So that was my background that I put out there for voters to consider against, in this case, a guy named Rob Bonta, who had been appointed by Gavin Newsom to the position and had literally spent zero amount of time in the criminal courts his entire career. The job of the state attorney general is a big job. You know, you're in charge of the civil, criminal, and appellate litigation for the state of California. You run an office with over 4,000 lawyers. And, you know, I put my experience and leadership against Rob Bonta. And unfortunately, the voters didn't pay enough attention to the race, to be quite candid, because Bonta's strategy was basically never to mention my name, which was shocking. Literally, an entire campaign, he never mentioned my name. He never agreed to a debate. And his overall strategy was is that the media didn't pay attention to this race. He would win on registration advantage. And it turns out the media didn't pay attention to the race. And although we raised over $5 million, we weren't able to get our message out to enough people. I want to ask you about a strange thing. In last year's primary, you were the leading challenger to Democratic candidate Rob Bonta. But voters heard a series of ads for Bonta that made it sound like other Republicans who trailed you badly in the polls were actually the leaders. What happened there? It's about as devious and manipulative of the political system as you can get. What happened on roughly May 1st of 2022, before the June primary, is that I was leading in the polls. I had gotten the endorsement of the California Republican Party and all the endorsements of any Republican official who had endorsed in the race. And my Republican challenger in the race was a guy named Eric Early. 
Eric Early is a decent attorney, but he has nowhere close to the background on the criminal side or the leadership side that I have. He had almost no money at that time and no endorsements. But the Democrats put literally $2 million behind him and ran ads on Fox. They ran ads on Newsmax. They ran ads on conservative media touting Eric Early as the true opponent in the race, true opponent for Rob Bonta, and then, of course, making him seem dangerous and illiberal. But they kept repeating over and over that he was the true conservative in the race, hoping that they could get him through, knowing that if he got through, it would be a uh, slam dunk in the general election. Whereas by my getting through, I had obviously far more credentials than Rob Bonta has. I had a blueprint for how to run the California Attorney Justice that Eric Early didn't. And they tried very hard, and it almost worked. Luckily, we had raised $2 million ourselves, and we had gone out early to voters to make it clear who was the endorsed candidate by the California Republican Party, by other members of the Republican establishment. And we beat Eric Early by about two and a half points in the primary, but not for lack of trying by Rob Bonta and the Democrats to get Eric Early through. Let me get this straight. You're saying that Democrat-aligned groups amplified far-right candidates, Republicans totally outside of the mainstream, in hopes of advancing them to the final ballot in November, and then ran ads on conservative outlets like Fox and Newsmax to support those candidates? Yes, and conservative radio. Wow, that's hypocritical. Hypocritical, manipulative. You know, it's the kind of political skullduggery that the Democrats love to accuse Republicans of, and they were using right in the middle of a race. And what was very disappointing as well is that there was one or two articles about this, but the media basically gave them a pass. You know, you saw the same thing being played out actually across the nation. I mean, you had the governor of Illinois, Pritzker, basically helping finance the far right opponent so that the moderate opponent wouldn't get through. And it actually worked. I mean, I think he put in like $30 million of his own money. So it is a strategy that the Democrats have used. They view it as sort of anything that's successful is appropriate. And I couldn't disagree more. There is good news, of course. You're running for office again. This time it's for district attorney in LA County. Tell us about that. Well, it's interesting. The issues that drove me in the attorney general's race are quite candidly the same issues that are driving me now to run against George Gascon in LA in the Los Angeles district attorney's race. I looked at the criminal issues. I looked at the issues of fentanyl poisoning. I was bringing up fentanyl poisoning a year and a half ago when it was an issue that the media wouldn't cover. When I was watching people in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and actually all over California, and we're talking about children. And by children, I mean, you know, people between the ages of, let's say, 13 and 25. I call them children at this point in time. I'm watching them die. Not because they're trying to get high, but because basically people are slipping in. They're secreting fentanyl into the drug supply. They're creating counterfeit pills, Oxycontin, Adderall, Xanax, Percocet. They're lacing it into the marijuana supply, the cocaine supply, the ecstasy supply. So people are literally dying on a daily basis, we estimate there are seven to 10 Californians that will be dead by the end of today by fentanyl poisoning. Yet nobody was covering it. Rob Bonta had no interest in getting involved in the fentanyl deal. 
Most of the district attorneys, other than two or three initially, had no interest. I put that issue on the front burner. And because of it, we were able to get 12 different district attorneys to give warnings to fentanyl dealers that if they did the crime and got caught and someone died, they could actually be charged with murder the second time around. It's a situation that was near and dear to my heart because I met a whole bunch of parents that, whose kids had died from fentanyl poisoning. Homelessness, huge issue. I mean, I'm here in Los Angeles. You know, we have 70,000 homeless people in the county that will be homeless tonight with a number that's only gone up, not down, despite the tens of millions of dollars and overall probably billions of dollars that have been spent on that issue. I mean, obviously, San Francisco is probably ground zero or exhibit A for ineffective programs dealing with a homeless population in a way that is destroying the city and quite more broadly destroying the state. So we looked at homelessness. We looked at fentanyl poisoning. We looked at the whole Proposition 47 issue, which is that a lot of district attorneys have decided not to prosecute misdemeanor property crimes. And when a misdemeanor property crime became $950 or less, all of a sudden you had rampant spirals of lawlessness erupting in cities across California, where one person would go into you know, a CVS and steal just $950 and walk out with impunity. And two people would go into a Walgreens. 10 people would come out of a 7-Eleven. You had 100 people doing flash mobs in grocery stores. Nordstrom's had people running in and out. Neiman Marcus, right in the middle of San Francisco, the videos of people literally running out with merchandise. And when asked why they were doing it, they basically said, because it's free. And that's what happens when the rules start to decay in cities, when prosecutors are more interested in how many defendants they can let out of jail early or not put in jail in the first time versus bringing safety and security to their communities. You mentioned Prop 47. That's the one that downgraded many property crimes. But can you explain how that works? Sure. So Proposition 47 was marketed to Californians as the Safe Neighborhoods and Schools Act. And who wouldn't want to sign up for a safe neighborhood in school? But what it had in the fine print, if you actually read it, is it was going to raise the threshold between a misdemeanor and a felony. A misdemeanor is considered a relatively low-level offense. The maximum is one year in jail, and usually you never get jail on a misdemeanor. And a felony can land you in county jail or state prison. And so it went from $400 to $950. So already there was going to be an issue that you could steal just under $950, only get a misdemeanor. And do that every single day. It would never at any point elevate into a felony, no matter if you stole $950 every single day of the week for a year. So that was problem number one. But where problem number two came in is that certain district attorneys, like George Gascon in LA, like Chase Boudin in San Francisco, announced that they would no longer prosecute misdemeanor property crimes. What that meant is that it was a message to every criminal out there that you can now steal just under $950, and the DA's office would decline to prosecute that case if you were arrested and brought in by but the police. So DA declines prosecution. Eventually, the police say, why am I going to spend the time arresting people and writing up a report or even giving them a citation if the DA is not going to go on the case? So then they tell that to the store owner. Store owner says, well, then why am I calling the police 
because the police can't do anything because the DA can't do anything. So they stop reporting the crime and they just chalk it up to waste or whatever they chalk it up to on their books. Now, CVS, Walgreens, and others, they can either absorb that cost or do what they did in San Francisco, which is close stores. And the stores they're closing are not in the high-end areas where people have many options. They're very often in areas where the CVS or the Walgreens was the only option that someone would have to walk to get their prescription medicine. So you created a situation where the big stores have actually voted with their feet and walked. And then the small store owners are getting just destroyed because their margins are already pretty thin. And when they watch people come in, steal stuff, and walk out, and all they can do is literally scream at them because nothing else is going to stop them, that's where the small owners are being crushed in these cities that have DAs who refuse to actually do their job. So the first thing I could do as the DA is make it crystal clear that in L.A. County, crimes will have consequences. And it doesn't mean I'm going to go back to the old policies of putting everyone in jail for 100 years, but now we're on the other end of the pendulum swing of decarceration or no incarceration. we got to go back to what I call the hard middle. And the reason it's hard is that you need someone with experience to figure out who the true threats to society are. So if someone is stealing one time, you know, they go into a store and they steal stuff, do they need to go to state prison for 10 years? Of course not. Could they serve their debt to society with community service or something like that? Of course, that's a proportional response. But if they're doing it 15 times and they have a record a mile long, that's your candidate for state prison because that particular person has shown that they are a true threat to public safety and security in our society. So I would go back to recalibrating the balance between putting the true threats to public safety in prison and the ones who are not, your nonviolent first-time offenders, make sure that they at least pay a debt to society, even if it's with community service, diversion, or home detention. You've made big progress with that common sense message in Hollywood. Am I right that in the last election, you were endorsed by Gwyneth Paltrow? She was. She put me on her slate of people to vote for in the general election. I was actually the only Republican she put on that slate. I had actually 40% of the money that I raised came from Democrats and independents. Because the message I put out there is a very common sense message. It's bring back the idea that crimes have consequences, that all actions have consequences. Focus as well on trying when people go to prison to try and give them a skill set so that that when they get out of prison, you know, we have a 50% recidivism rate in our prison population, which means within two years, people who leave prison, 50% of them will be back in prison. Why? Because while we're in prison, we don't spend the time and resources to give them a skill set and then help them get their first job when they get out and help them actually become productive members of society. And when you don't do that, and all they know is the only way they can put food on the table is by stealing or engaging in crime, it's not a shock that that's what they go back to. And by the way, when stores close because of theft, jobs go with them. It's a vicious cycle. The jobs, the taxes that they pay, sales tax, property taxes, and just the quality of of the life in that community starts a spiral of lawlessness. And you have to stop that spiral. City governments have to come in and basically say, we're not going to allow this to occur. 
in order to get the confidence and the trust back on people to move back into these neighborhoods to, for stores to invest in these locations. I mean, every day it seems I'm reading another article about another store pulling out of you know, downtown San Francisco because they're seeing a situation where city government has failed. The DA is now trying to rectify the damage that Chase of Boudin did, but it's very hard to do. And people stop believing. People stop investing. And the more that happens, the more it keeps spiraling. You have to arrest that spiral and send it back in the other way. How do you, as a Republican, navigate complex social issues like abortion, LGBTQ rights, gun control, and those sort of national issues? So it's funny. Uh, I'll talk about it in terms of the AG race. And, and the race I'm running in Los Angeles is actually a nonpartisan position. Difference between an attorney general position, which is a partisan position that lists your party affiliation, and the DA in Los Angeles, probably like the DA in San Francisco as well, is as a nonpartisan position. You, you should run, you should be independent, <laughs> independent of political parties to be a district attorney. But when I was running for the attorney general position, it is a political position in part. And what I dealt with these issues, I said, look, candidly, I've been pro-choice my whole life. And I've told people that I've had long discussions with people who have the opposite view. I like those discussions. I've moved my views in, in some aspects of it in certain directions because I've had long, deep, intelligent discussions with people on all sides of the political spectrum. I've been in favor of same-sex unions since the get-go. You know, I was running, in essence, as a moderate Republican who was very strong when it came to safety and security very fiscally conservative, anti-corruption in all forms, whether it's in government or unions or wherever it is found. And then with respect to certain social issues, probably more on the moderate side of the spectrum. And what I would emphasize for people is that the attorney general especially should be above politics in many respects. You know, it should be enforcing the law and the law features a lady justice and she's wearing a blindfold. She's not wearing a Democratic pin. She's not wearing a Republican pin. She's got a blindfold on. And ideally, that's what you want in your attorney general, is someone who really calls the balls and the strikes fairly, and not because they just happen to be a Democrat or Republican. And that was the pitch I was making, that if you want to vote the person rather than necessarily the party, and I'll put my you know, credentials against Rob Bontas any day of the week. I didn't think that was even a fair fight for Rob Bonta. But again, very often in this state, unless you can really have an enormous ad budget, people get to the ballot. They don't really know much about your race. They don't know much about you. I was listed with an R. He was listed with a D. And people reflexively just vote without any other information. Let's talk about homelessness. What is California doing wrong and how would you tackle the problem? You know, Michael Schellenberger wrote an excellent book called San Francisco, where he really analyzed the homeless policy in San Francisco over the last 10 years and was quite shocked at his findings because he comes from the far left. I mean, if ever there was someone, I mean, this is a guy who literally is on the far left, and he was analyzing San Francisco's policies and came away thinking like, you've spent billions of dollars and you've actually made the problem worse. So when you go ahead and you basically tell people that we're going to give you money, we're going to give you housing, we're going to give you food, but we require nothing of you. 
So if you want to keep doing drugs to the point where you kill yourself, we're okay with that. We're not going to stop it. We're not going to put any conditions on you getting any of these supplies from the city. In fact, we're going to let you pretty much set up camp wherever you want, notwithstanding the fact that you'll be in public thoroughways, in public sidewalks, in public parks. That's okay. If you send that message to the homeless, the homeless are not stupid. They are paying attention wherever they are in this country. In fact, they estimate that 10 to 15% of the homeless population in this state were homeless in another state and came here because we give them money, we give them food, we don't hassle them at all or very little. And if that's your policy, you're going to attract homeless people. You're not going to be able to deal with the problem when they get here. We already have a housing shortage before all these people show up. And again, you couple all this with probably the most homeless-friendly environment in the United States, it's not a shock we have one in three homeless people. What can we do about it, though? You know, again, I think you need to have, I think homeless people, again, actions have to have consequences. The idea is not to put the homeless people necessarily and lock them up and put them in state prisons and county jails. It's a temporary, unsuccessful solution because the jails and the prisons are not up to the task of dealing with our homeless population. One of the things that Governor Newsom actually did that I applauded is that are these care courts. Because for 40 years, judges have only had two options when a homeless person came before them who committed a crime. Either put them in jail, which is a failed option to deal with their, especially if they have mental illness, or go ahead and put them back on the street, which is condemning them to an inhumane existence. The care court for mental illness said, we're going to give judges a third option. And we're going to actually allow a judge to basically put someone in an in-custody place for a year to deal with their serious mental illness, assuming all due process standards are abided by. That was huge. Highly opposed by the far left, but Gavin Newsom actually managed to get that through. What's very interesting, though, is that six months before the care courts came on Gavin Newsom's desk, he had another bill, AB 1541. And what that bill was, was to do the same thing for substance abuse addicts as they did for serious mental illness, which is to allow judges to order that you get into a 12-month program, you know, an in-residence program, is one of the options the judges had. Gavin Newsom vetoed that bill. He caved into the far left in this respect, even though that bill passed the state assembly 77 to 1. And nothing passes the state assembly 77 to 1. So there are certain solutions to deal with both substance abuse and mental illness that are absolutely critical to dealing with the homeless population because they estimate that 70% of the homeless population suffers from serious mental illness, substance abuse, addiction, or both. Also deal with the type of people who are one good job away from not being homeless. You can conquer a decent chunk of the homeless situation. So you're saying that in California, even if a judge wants to send someone to rehab instead of prison, the judge can't do that? Correct. Right now, they cannot do that. They cannot order you to go to an in-residence facility in lieu of, let's say, going to prison. They used to have drug courts in San Francisco and other, in Los Angeles and other major cities. And what a drug court was, was a voluntary decision that said, I will do an 18-month program 
through the drug court rather than going to state prison. But when Proposition 47 got passed, and all of a sudden you weren't going to go to state prison, in the stick analogy, they took away the stick of going to state prison. So drug addicts are thinking to themselves, let's see, I can do a month in county jail, where I can do a pretty rigorous 18-month program to get clean. I'll do my month in county jail and get out. And drug courts went away, and judges lost all power to really deal with someone with a serious substance abuse addiction. Why would Gavin Newsom oppose rehab? The reason he vetoed it was he said, well, people are telling me that you can't kick a drug addiction if someone orders you into a program. That's actually wrong. The science and the data says just the opposite. If you get ordered into a 30-day program, maybe that's possible. You're not going to kick your drug addiction. You'll probably get cleaned up and that'll be that. But if you're in a one-year program in residence and you have to deal with your addiction for an entire year, the data is overwhelming that by the end of that year, you will very well get on a road to kick your, sub. you don't ever kick it, but to deal with your substance abuse addiction. And so Gavin Newsom was wrong on the science. And interestingly, he did an about face when it came to mental illness. So I think what was about to happen is he was going to be up for election, you know, in 2022. And he wanted to show people that he was doing something to deal with the homeless situation. He adopted the care courts and turned it down for substance abuse. Mental illness, yes. Substance abuse addiction, no. So police departments across the state and country really are understaffed. If you're elected DA, how will you do your job amidst these officer shortages? Well, amongst the problems of a modern police force in California, it probably starts from the top. When you have DAs throughout California that were more interested in prosecuting the police officers and making that sort of a banner headline in their campaigns rather than working with the police, then it's a message to the police that the DA doesn't have your back. I would change that around on day one. I've been a defense attorney. I've been a prosecutor. I've run a prosecutorial division. But I know what the role of a prosecutor needs to be. It needs to be the person in the courtroom that is representing victims, that is representing the people, and has to basically, and the defendant has their own counsel, and hopefully a good one. But you cannot have justice in our society if the prosecutor, the DA, turns out to be more on the defense side than he is on the people side. And that's what we've seen in too many jurisdictions from San Francisco to LA. But I think if you start with the morale and basically say, look, the DA is going to have your back. And by the way, it doesn't mean that if an officer crosses the line that we're not going to come down on that officer. The law applies equally to everyone. And when an officer comes down on the line, I will tell you, having talked to many police captains, commissioners, and whatnot, they do have almost less tolerance for officers breaking the law than I would ever have. So I believe that you, know, you get sort of the morale question. Then you've got to be able to pay them. Because again, what we've seen in LA recently is they're actually offering signing bonuses to try and attract people. Many officers are going to Texas. They're going to Florida because those are much more morale-friendly. They don't have state income tax. They find that the housing costs are a lot lower. So you've actually got to attract quality people because the last thing you need is to get people who are not top of their class, quality people, being the people who are carrying a badge and a gun. That's a recipe for disaster. You need your best and your brightest 
actually being your police officers as well. And so to the extent you need to actively recruit them, now San Francisco is competing with Los Angeles. We're competing with the state. We're competing with other states. We've got a long way to sort of to resurrect the fact that in California, in Los Angeles, and San Francisco, these used to be the dream jobs for police officers because they could come out here, get a job, the community would support them. They'd live in a beautiful place, retire, call it a career. We got to bring that back. And you're right. A DA is going to have a big trouble if they cannot have a law enforcement operation as high end as you can possibly get it. I know recently, for instance, in Los Angeles, the LA sheriff has just asked for an additional billion dollars to try and actually bring technology to the sheriff's office, which is a key way to leverage every officer's ability to try and bring modern weaponry. You don't have to go ahead and draw your gun. There's other things you can do short of drawing the actual gun that can help deal with the situation. Training, very expensive. You know, in Germany, they train officers for two years, paid, before they give them a gun and a badge. Here, most of the California police departments, it's at most probably six to eight months. So you got some 22-year-old with six to eight months training and now he's out on the street with a mentor, but he's got a badge and a gun trying to bring justice wherever he can find it. So again, these are both financial issues, morale issues, and sort of you know leveraging technology issues and all of the above. But imagine how much the applicant pool will improve if people elect a moderate common sense DA like yourself. And you're right. And, and that's the interesting thing about a DA position is that you can change the, the morale on a dime. When Chase and Boudin went out and Brooke Jennings went in, again, it changed the morale even in that office immediately. And I'm not saying she's perfect, but she's a heck of a lot better than Chase and Boudin. It can be changed very quickly. If George Gascon is out by 2024, and I hopefully am the person that gets to replace him, again, within months, we can change the morale structure and then start dealing with the time-consuming infrastructure changes that we're going to need to improve the police force. What's the state of the race with George Gascon? So George Gascon is probably the most unpopular politician in Los Angeles County at this point. Even though the recall of Gascon did not go forward, it set three records in the process. Over 520,000 validated signatures were recorded against Gascon, actually far more than, than were submitted against Chase Boudin, although because LA County is bigger, it didn't qualify for the recall. There were 36 cities that passed no confidence motions in LA County against George Gascon. Before this, there had been zero cities passing a no confidence motion against the district attorney. And my favorite statistic, 97.8% of the 800 lawyers that worked for George Gascon voted to support his recall. So you have a very unpopular politician amongst his own troops, amongst the cities that he represents, amongst the voters. And I think what LA is looking for is someone who has experience. And I bring 30 years experience, as I mentioned, as both a federal prosecutor, a U.S. assistant attorney general, and even a defense attorney. Leadership, someone who actually has led a division and can lead this particular, it is the largest local law enforcement office in the United States. And independence, because I won't be beholden to either political party when I make my decisions. 
How can people keep in touch with your campaign? My website is basically my name. It's uh, www.nathanhockman, N-A-T-H-A-N-H-O-C-H-M-A-N.com. Please go on the website if you're interested in helping to support the campaign. And, you know, one of the things we have to do is reach probably 5 to 10 million voters between now and March 5th, which is when the primary is. So if you're interested in helping donate, that'd be terrific. If you know people in LA County, you can pass the word even better. And again, I really appreciate being on this program because, you know, you bring a very needed viewpoint to people out there. Way too often, the media, it basically, it deep sixes these views. It's not like it necessarily spreads fake news about what I'm saying. It spreads no news. It doesn't even cover it. So the fact that you're covering these ideas and spreading them to your listeners is extremely important. I commend you for doing it. It's our pleasure, Nathan. Good luck with the campaign. 